Scott, do you like coffee? I've been known to enjoy a cup of coffee. I love coffee. I drink probably far too much coffee. And that is why I'm excited to say that this is our first sponsored podcast, and we're sponsored by Roast Scout. So this is a new company that just launched here in Oklahoma City. Roast Scout is the best way to discover amazing, delicious coffee from some of the nation's best independent roasters. Scott, do you grind your own coffee? I do. Do you buy whole bean? I do. Yeah, me too. So the people at Roast Scout believe that great coffee is everywhere. But since you can't be everywhere, you might miss out. So they've created a way to bring that great coffee to you. They work with small batch roasters from around the country to ship fresh roasted whole bean coffee direct to your door each month. Now, other coffee subscription services typically send you like one brand of coffee every month, right? Like there's several, you just get the same thing every month. The other ones aren't great. They're, it's fine. It's, it's coffee. I'm not going to complain. But Roast Scout finds new roasters and each month you get a different kind of coffee bean from a di- that's roasted in a different roastery now see that seems like something i'd be into i sounds like something you'd be into yeah uh and so th- and they ship it straight to your door and it just arrives it's just wait you just get home and it's just like there yeah i mean like what if you know so you like coffee fine but what if your coffee soulmate is out there and like you know somewhere in montana in a small roastery and you don't know about them you're not going to visit them but now roast scout they scouted it they could find it and ship it to you so you're saying roast scout could be the one to introduce me to my your forever one, coffee partner your one true coffee oh. except it's a new one every month so there's that so you can sign up today they just launched this week if you go to roastscout.com slash let's fix this you can sign up on there uh, and have that coffee delivered right to your door as well you should do that it's sure. better than blue apron do this <laughs> do this instead all you gotta do is grind the coffee and then you know Mix it with hot water, basically. Yeah. However you like to make it. They even, I think they even sell some like uh, coffee making apparatus. Paraphernalia. Apparati. Yeah, paraphernalia. Accoutrements. 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 Roscout.com slash let's fix this. Hey everyone, and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined by your other host, Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? How are you? Man, I'm well. I'm dry. More so than I was like two hours ago when I walked from my, you know, car to the front door. It's damp out today. That is an understatement. And we're joined on the phone this week by a special guest, a friend of the pod, Maybe one of our most dear friends of the pod, former Let's Fix This board member and uh, and a good friend of yours and mine, Effie Craven. Hello, Effie. How are you? Hey, guys. I'm good. I'm so excited to be on the pod. Effie faithfully listens every week and often sends us feedback via text message or email. Yes, it's true. Uh, so thanks for that. Always happy to give my input. All right. So uh, Effie... You and your husband relocated to the D.C. area a few months ago uh, and consequently had to step down from our board at the end of the fiscal year. Um, Would you mind telling us a a brief overview of what you've been up to there in the D.C. area? Yeah. um, While I was in Oklahoma, as many of you know, I was the um, policy director for the two food banks handling the federal and state um, lobbying and advocacy work. Um, I've 
got offered a, a job with our national office in Washington, D.C., and so I'm doing the same kind of work just um, nationwide now, so I'm getting to spend quite a bit of time on Capitol Hill um, doing uh, the congressional lobbying side of things, um, and it is a really interesting time to be in Washington um, and getting to help mobilize food banks across the country to get engaged in advocacy and speak up about the issues that impact people who are food insecure. Did Did you say you're a lobbyist? <laughs> I am a lobbyist. Um, I I didn't know that. Doesn't that? I, I try not to be friends with evil people, and I feel like I'm supposed to say that you being a lobbyist means you're like a terrible person. Is that not the tr- is that not the case? I love to tell people I'm a lobbyist because usually you get kind of a side eye and like a grimace, and then I follow it up with for food banks, and then they usually warm up quite a bit. So right. that's a really great point that you know it's not just. Um, huge evil corporations that employ lobbyists. There are lots of great organizations, nonprofits included, that um, recognize they need to have a voice with legislators. That is, I think, an inc- that's. It, it sounds like maybe you've explained that before, because that was a very. I like, have th- explained that. I have explained that before a few <laughs> times. Because usually, you know, lobbyists and and I don't know if there's another profession that comes to mind off the top of my head that usually makes people kind of uneasy right off the bat. Like, ew. Attorneys. That sounds dirty. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Lawyer I work in infectious diseases. That makes people feel pretty uncomfortable when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. But they know you're doing good. Like, you're not spreading infectious diseases. They don't know that up front. <laughs> I often have to clarify. He doesn't because he doesn't say he works in a clinic. He just says, uh, I work in infectious diseases. And they're like, ooh, like Ebola? Well... Kind of. I mean, theoretically. Yeah. I. This is totally off topic, but I want to say, Scott, there's a ladybug here in Upper Room Studios, and it is walking the length of this microphone cord on the table. Can you see it right here? Yeah, it's Patsy. A Patsy. Yeah. <laughs> I've taken a picture. Is will... supposed to be good luck? I don't know. It doesn't have any spots. Uh, Maybe it got washed off in the rain. Maybe. Patsy, uh, where are your spots? Hey! There it is. There it is. <laughs> um... All right, well, I'll, I just took a photo of Patsy. I will post it on our social media. Yes, please do. Well, oh, she's uh, transitioned to a new court. She's coming from my side to your side of the table. Yeah, she knows I'm talking about her. <laughs> she does. She heard her name. Come over there and sh- set you straight. Yeah, right. All right, well, um, do we have any announcements? No announcements. Let's jump into the news. All right, news roundup. So first up today, we have um, the great folks at KGOU, who always are doing fantastic work, have a nice piece. Uh, Ethics Commission passes revolving door rule again. So briefly, the Oklahoma Ethics Commission had passed a rule that was barring elected officials and agency heads from becoming lobbyists for two years after leaving their position. Um, They passed this rule last year. The legislature said no thank you during the 2018 session and um, passed a resolution basically saying thank you for your input, but no. They argued that the Ethics Commission had overstepped their constitutional authority. Um, Now the Ethics Commission has come back and passed the exact same rule again, saying, in fact, no, we didn't, and this is a good rule, and we... We insist. So um, there was a meeting on September 15th, or a hearing, I should say, that was kind of talking about this. Um, there were um, our agency representatives there. Uh, Ashley Kemp, who is from the, she's the executive director of the commission, said that, you know, we feel like we have the ability to do this. The attorney general's office didn't have any concern about this. Um, there were also some legislators there. Representative Tom Gann, is Republican from Inola, um, spoke and actually spoke in favor of the ruling. Um, he feels like that having a cooling off period is not uncommon in the private sector and there's no reason that shouldn't 
apply to the Ethics Commission as well. Um, however, there was Representative John Paul Jordan, who's a Republican from Yukon, who actually authored the resolution opposing the rule, who still said this is, you know, the Ethics Commission does not have the authority to regulate the behavior of private citizens. The argument is basically once we have left the legislature, the Ethics Commission doesn't have any authority to tell us what we can and can't do. Now, Effie, you and I were texting before the, before the show, and I think you have some some thoughts on this, being that you're a you're one of those evil lobbyists that uh, everyone everyone loves to hate on. Yeah, first of all, I just want to say more power to the Ethics Commission for coming back and doing this a second time. Um, they are standing their ground on this one and um, obviously picking a fight with some members of the legislature. Um, I think that, you know, I think the revolving door rules are pretty common across the country in a lot of states. And I think in Oklahoma, this is important since we saw, I can't remember if it was last year or a couple of years ago, we saw legislators actually step down in the middle of session or in the middle of their term and then become employed as lobbyists like right away. Um, you know, they, they are private citizens once they're out of office, but they still have all of the connections and all of that insider knowledge and their ability to, to use it to their advantage right off the bat seems like an unfair kind of thing to have happen. Um, I can tell you in Congress there's a cooling off period. If you leave the, the Senate or the House, both as a legislator and as a staffer, um, you can't lobby that body for, for a certain amount of time. So this is pretty standard. I think it's common sense. Um, I think that the legislators who are speaking out against this uh, know that their next job perhaps would have been as a lobbyist. And so they're, they're really just arguing for their own pocketbook rather than the best interests of Oklahoma. Well, and I think my understanding is that they're also concerned about legislators here at the state level in particular who would leave office and get a job at like a nonprofit organization where they might be the executive director. For example, uh, former legislator Joe Dorman is now the director of the Oklahoma Institute for Child Advocacy. Now, it's been a long time since Joe's been out of office, so this rule wouldn't apply anyway. But in that example, like you might... Let's say you'd leave the legislature and you were a big advocate for children or for mental health services or something, and you went to one of those organizations. Um, members of the legislature were worried that that would mean that they couldn't, in their role as an executive of that organization, come back and, and advocate for those services. I, you know, I, I think that that probably needs clarification with the Ethics Commission, but as a, as a nonprofit professional, and I've only ever been a nonprofit lobbyist, um, that doesn't sound quite right to me. Um, who a nonprofit organization em employs as their executive director is not related to that organization's uh, legal right to lobby and to advocate. So, you know, maybe it's just not that the executive director is the one doing the lobbying or is not the one that's the registered lobbyist. Right, I mean, they, they um, could so contract that, with somebody. Exactly, or they could have a, a staff member doing it. Um, and, and to be honest, a lot of nonprofits are not spending a ton of time doing lobbying anyway. Um, so I think that that's a great question for the Ethics Commission, but just, you know, off the top of my head, that doesn't sound quite right, because the organization still has the right to advocate regardless of who they hire. Well, you know, I think kind of related related to this, we're going to jump, as I was hurriedly putting our agenda together today and looking at the order of the articles we're going to discuss, I should have put um, the this next, the 
one I put towards the end next. Um, and this is a piece from Nondoc talking about the uh, freshman class size of next year's legislature, and that essentially the the freshman class next year it is going to be huge. <laughs> there will be even if there are no incumbents who lose in their in their general elections in November, the next session of the legislature will have a freshman class that's got forty four new members in the House and twelve in the Senate. So just for perspective, that's 43% of the House and 25% of the Senate that's going to be new. Brand new. Brand new. Plus, mm-hmm. I mean, plus there's about uh, half that many that were new in the last election yeah. in 2016 or were elected in a special election. Yep. So I think we're going to have something like altogether like 62 new oh. members. Oh, I've got the You've numbers. You've got the numbers? Yeah. Of course you do. So, so... When you think about term limits that are forcing out 12 House members, the GOP House members who lost in the uh, primaries and the runoffs, um, when you put all those together, that means that there will be 76 House members who have two or fewer years of experience in the 2019 session. That's, Just, a, that's, that's a three-quarter majority. We can get some stuff done now. Right. It's, that's <laughs> yeah. three-quarters. That, like, well, don't... And linking, linking that back to the last story, you know, that's already the dynamic a little bit at the, at the Oklahoma Capitol where a lot of the institutional knowledge in the building because of term limits is held by staff and lobbyists who've been there a long time because there's not term limits for those positions, right? So Absolutely. this huge freshman class and then thinking, what if what if legislators who either have turned out or lost their races or whatever are suddenly employed in lobbyists, as lobbyists, the very same session that we have this huge freshman class, um, you have to think about where that power in the building and the influence is really going to lie. So I think, again, that's another reason that cooling off period is a good idea. No, I mean, that's exactly the point that I was going to make. And, and the article from Nondoc actually goes on to say that, that because there's going to be so much new blood and because the institutional knowledge will have so much of that's going to have left the building, um, people who are unelected and pe- just because somebody's not elected doesn't mean they're like bad, right? Just because somebody's a career staffer or a lobbyist doesn't mean that they are malintentioned or that they're a bad person, but it does mean that they don't have the same kind of accountability to the public that elected officials do. Mm -hmm. And those people are going to have an incredible amount of power in the 57th session of the legislature because so many of the members are going to be new. Um, And that's really something. That's exactly right. And I think that there's, you know, there are ways in which that could be a positive, right? Like because there's so many new people there, they're going to kind of figure out their own way of doing things. But I think the question that we don't know the answer to yet is going to be, are they going to rely more on staff? Are they going to rely more on lobbyists? Are they going to be putting out like Facebook posts to their constituents? Like where are these new legislators going to be getting the information that they use to make decisions as they're voting on, as they're voting on uh, the rules that govern our society? Indeed. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm trying to take some more photos of Patsy, but because my first one was blurry, she's was... moving so quickly. She's just cruising around. It's like one of those little, uh, like slot car tracks you have when you're a kid. She's training. We have agility trials coming she's... up. <laughs> Sport trials. That's nice. <laughs> a little obstacle course for your ladybug. Yeah. What's so, next, Scott? All right. So next up, we've got another. You know, I try really hard not to double dip our news sources every week, um, but KGOU was just killing it this week. We've got another piece from KGOU. Um, education leaders see few benefits of ballot measure to give schools more financial stability. So this is a a, a state question that's going to be on the ballot come November that essentially would allow school districts 
to use money that's in their building fund, which is right now restricted. So this is money that can only be spent on things like construction projects, maintenance, uh, building repairs, utilities, custodial salaries. And this is a bill that essentially would allow school districts to um, transfer money out of those building funds and use it for other things, like teacher salaries, for instance. This is a bill by uh, State Senator Stephanie Bice, who's a Republican from Northwest Oklahoma City. Um, she feels like this is good because this is basically giving schools, school districts more flexibility in how they spend the money that's in their own coffers. However, there are several leaders in education across the state who feel like this is not this is not great. So Sean Heim is the executive director of the Oklahoma State School Boards Association. He he doesn't feel like this is a help because one, there's a lot of districts that already don't have enough money in their building fund to do the things that the building fund was designed to do, number one. Um, and number two, it doesn't provide a way for them to raise money and put money in the building fund. So it doesn't provide a new revenue source. It just says that you can transfer the money that's already there and use it for something else. And the other thing that some that some folks are kind of feeling like maybe this isn't a good idea is it may it may allow districts that are already disproportionately wealthy to use money that's supposed to be restricted in other ways that further kind of widens the gap between those wealthy districts and districts that are less well off. And that's because the money that's in these building funds largely comes from property taxes and ad valorem taxes. And so districts that are, have much, much higher property values and have more kind of economic activity going on in terms of, you know, new properties that's being developed, those districts have a lot more money in those funds. And so they have a lot more flexibility. Um, and so there's a thought from, from some folks that this is, you know, would, would exacerbate a, a problem of inequality that's already pretty profound um, across Oklahoma. That was the sentiment that Alicia Priest, who's the president of the Oklahoma Education Association, um, as well as uh, some other leaders have expressed. But there's some folks, Tulsa Mayor uh, G.T. Bynum, he's in support of this. He feels like it's a, a good start, not a fix, but a good start. Um, the Oklahoma Achieves, which is a workforce development program at the Oklahoma State Chamber, they feel like it's a good a good place to start. So, that's uh that's what this piece is about. What are you thoughts, guys? I so I think it's I think it has the potential to be good for some schools or school districts, uh, but also like very bad for lots of others. Um, and so, in many cases, the districts who really need the money, um, they they need it for lots of things. They don't just need it. Like just for salaries, they also need infrastructure. Now, you know, it's different. I think everyone thinks about high schools with giant football stadiums and they think, well, why are you spending money on that and not on salaries or something else? This would allow them to do that. But if you're a rural district or a poor district, that may not be the, the case. You don't have a giant stadium. Although some rural districts do. I mean, I, in like some of them have like uh, oil and gas or wind money. You're thinking back to your time in Texas. That's true. My high school, <laughs> at the time I was in high school, we had the largest stadium for a school of our size. Did you go to like Odessa somewhere? No, I went to Leander. Well, oh, all right. Go Lions. Effie, what do you think? I mean, I think that it's, it's sort of sounds good and it sounds like a, a, you know, kind of a local control, you know, let, let schools decide how they want to spend what is currently restricted money. But I also, I agree with some of the folks that you mentioned in the article that it's not really a fix. 
and I worry that it might take the heat off the legislature a little bit to provide extra funding for schools. Um, so that would be my concern is that, you know, the, the legislature is going to get off the hook a little bit and, and more of the scrutiny would be on individual schools and how they're choosing to spend their money rather than the fact that the pie hasn't necessarily grown. Yeah, that's I mean, that's where I'm at. I, I, I totally agree. Like this to me just says the districts that are already wealthy are going to be able to, you know, use use some of that to offer perks and incentives that maybe they can't now, which is just going to further exacerbate the problem of inequality that we already have. But Mm -hmm. all right well shall we shall we press on yes all right uh next next couple of uh, pieces here are going to focus on healthcare. um next up is a piece from news okay this is one of those things that um, at least for me is kind of equal parts tragedy uh, tragedy and just infuriating (laughs) um so this is a follow-up to something we mentioned a couple weeks ago that the paul's valley hospital um, was struggling to keep its doors open. So there was uh, two weeks ago an emergency meeting of the Paul's Valley Hospital Authority. They weren't sure whether they were going to be able to make payroll, even stay open. They emerged from that feeling like they had a plan in place. Um, according to this article from News OK, that plan included uh, fundraising on Facebook and establishing a GoFundMe account for the hospital to try and raise enough money to pay its employees. Um, the piece was published on Tuesday. Full disclosure, as of now, uh, they were able to make payroll and pay their employees. Um, whether Paul's Valley Hospital is going to be able to stay open in the future is still very much uh, an open question. And this is just, you know, all I'm going to pontificate here for a second. Um, it's, it's, this is, you know, people talk about things like Medicare and Medicaid and, government programs and they talk about them like you know people use the term welfare a lot and subsidies when you cut those programs on which people depend um you're like you're hurting the people that depend on them directly like you're hurting people who are insured from by medicare and medicaid but you're hurting a lot of other people too because especially rural hospitals depend largely on those sorts of federal programs for their revenue and when you cut those to the point where a hospital can't stay open that hospital closes, that impacts whether or not businesses move into that community, that impacts people who live in that community, because if you're a person with a lot of chronic health problems, you probably can't afford to live 27 miles away from a hospital, right? It impacts whether um, what the demographics of that community look like. Um, it impacts the economics of that community, because when the hospital closes, there are usually hundreds, if not thousands of people who lose their jobs. Um, so this is just... This is this is just, I think, to me, a, a tragic story all the way around and also infuriating because I don't think it's a story of, you know, a lot, there's there's some issues about whether or not the hospital was managed appropriately by the group that operated it before. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the details of that, and I'm not going to comment on whether or not I think that there's that, that's, a, that's a part of it. Um, but certainly, I think you can trace this directly back to um, state and federal cuts in Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement um, as at least one thing that led directly to this. Right. I th- can I just can yeah, I just on. say yikes here? Um, are are we having a society where our our schools and teachers and hospitals are like funded with bake sales? You know, this is yeah. this is like major infrastructure that's that's critical for having a successful, healthy society. Um, and so I just think, wow that we have hospitals, you know, going to internet fundraisers just to try to keep the doors open. One could I think argue that, that a lot. 
yeah. to, to how the state's been managed and how healthcare in general in Oklahoma, much like education, has just been, um, you know, neglected for, for years and years and years. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, one, one would argue, one could argue that education and healthcare are indeed a couple of the core functions of government. Now, healthcare in America is by and large a for-profit industry. Both Scott and I work in healthcare, um, although neither one of us really work on the for-profit side of things necessarily. Yeah, I work for a nonprofit, <laughs> and uh, and so it, maybe our experience is a little bit different. I I will say I think two things are probably at play. I will comment on the business side. It sounds like this hospital has been in dire straits for at least five years. They have upwards of $2 million in debt that they owe to the previous company um, who bought them because they were out of money from the previous company. Um, And so they were going to have to close about five years ago. And so that tells me that this hospital probably hasn't been able to stay afloat for some time now. So what's the reason for that? Well, that reason is it's in a rural area. Most patients in a rural area have Medicare or Medicaid, and there's just a a lower rate of insured people in general. And there, believe it or not, in many hospitals, that they, they are cost centers, they are loss leaders, and that the outpatient side of things is where maybe some of the profit uh, is made or where it's it's kind of balanced out there. And it's not uncommon for, for hospitals in these rural areas to lose money. And so if you don't have some kind of nonprofit backing or like connection to a larger organization, it's hard to stay afloat. Uh, and and because you are because you're relying on on providing you know largely like primary care services or emergency ser- services to people who can't afford to pay for it and and as healthcare at the state level and the federal level has decreased payouts to Medicare and Medicaid uh, or for those services then it's just hard to keep your doors open it's expensive to run a hospital in a way that is safe and healthy right you can run a mass Correct. unit for a yes. lot less. Yep. Yep. All right. Continuing our healthcare theme, uh, next up is a blog post from uh, OK Policy uh, by Courtney Cullison. So she's exploring the uh, new census data or new data from the Census Bureau that is, uh, I'm sure, going to be stunning to both of you guys. Um, so even though some progress has been made, this data shows that uh, poverty in Oklahoma is still above the national average. So in 2017, Um, 15.8% of Oklahomans, um, that's one in six, were living with income below the poverty line. The poverty line is $24,600 for a family of four before taxes. How much? $24,600. Whoa. Like, I have a family of two, um, not counting uh, Juno, who has yet to make her customary appearance on the pod today. Um, I cannot imagine supporting a family of four on less than $25,000. Like, I just can't, I can't fathom that. But... Um, that's the poverty level. Poverty level. It is a little bit lower than it was last year. Last year it was sixteen point three, but it is still uh, significantly higher, about two and a half percent higher than the poverty rate uh, nationally. Additionally, our uninsured rate has increased last year for the first time since two thousand ten. You guys know what happened in two thousand ten? Anyone? Anyone? Twenty ten? A census. Well, that would have uh, impacted the rates of uh, insurance. 
I forget. Obamacare. Obamacare was passed in 2010. Was it 2010? Man, yeah. I, you know, I, about twice a week, I'm like, whenever that was, five, six years ago. <laughs> right. Okay, yeah. eight years ago. So 20, 2010, Obamacare passed, and uh, in uninsured levels remained steady at about 18.5, 19% for the next uh, three years. But starting in 2013 and 2014, we saw a pretty dramatic decline from a, decline from a peak of 189 to a low of uh, 13.9%. And it actually stayed stable until when? 2016 what happened in 2016 uh we had a new president uh some shifts in congress started getting rid of things like um regulating what kinds of insurance plans uh are allowed to be on the market regulating enforcement of some of the provisions of uh the affordable care act and now our insurance uh, uninsured rate has gone up for the first time in several years um, and is now at 14.2%. That is significantly higher than the national uninsured rate of 8.7%. Uh, Courtney goes on to make the point that one of the things that is likely contributing to our significant proportion of uh, citizens who don't have health insurance is the fact that we continue to refuse to expand Medicaid, uh, which many other states have done. Um, the other stat in this that's just like, um, just, I mean, it, it almost like brings tears tears to your eyes. Not to um, be too melodramatic, but um, the numbers are even worse for kids. So it's one in six. Um, it's uh, one one in six Oklahomans altogether. Um, but it's one in five children. So one in five Oklahoma children. Twenty one point five percent of kids in Oklahoma live in a household with income below the poverty line. Which means, by definition, and Effie, jump in here if you. Uh, if, if I'm saying anything that's incorrect, but I would say by definition, that means they're living with things like food insecurity, right? Like wondering like if they're going to have enough food or whether they're getting enough food, whether that food is adequately nutritious, whether they're able to go to doctor's visits, whether the parents are able to take them to doctor's visits. It means that they're going to be struggling with school attendance. Um, it's just, it's just awful. And, and 8.1% of our kids are uninsured, which is just tragic. Well, and, and keep in mind that those numbers for health insurance rates are going to get even worse in Oklahoma if the Medicaid work requirements um, end up getting implemented. So, you know, thinking about, you mentioned how low the how low it really the salary really is to live at the poverty line, how stretched many Oklahomans already are, and then adding on top of that, if you have a, a heart attack and you don't have health insurance, you go to the emergency room, but that drives up costs for those hospitals, like we just talked about. So, so this this really does have impacts all the way around. It's not necessarily just on the people who are experiencing the health problems and don't have insurance, or for their families. It has it has ramifications through the whole economy and through the whole, um, all the way up and down the the income distribution. Yeah. No. And it, I mean it. it it impacts things like life expectancy. It impacts, uh, I mean, there was an article in the Washington post this week that we're not going to get into. We'll post a link to it on the blog, but, uh, Stillwell, Oklahoma, uh, over near the Arkansas border has the worst life and worst life expectancy in the country. 56.3 years. Average life expectancy in the United States is 78.8. Um, so adults in Stillwell die an average of 22 and a half years, um, before the national average. Um, I'd, I'd be really interested to see what sort of historical year that corresponds to, because to me, you know, a life expectancy in the 50s sounds like something that you would expect from, I don't know, a couple hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, by, by comparison, um, that's comparable to like, I want to say, I want to say that's comparable to like um, uh, the Congo. 
like 56.3 yeah. is yeah. like is like uh is about what it is in in the DR, democratic republic of congo well, and that's and, what it is in stillwell oklahoma and life expectancy in the united states as a whole contracted retracted whatever it got shorter yeah uh, on all on average over the last few years um, and we're like the only developed country for that to happen everyone else is living longer suddenly the u.s is living shorter yep keep eating those french fries folks all right i say that as someone who had french fries today Pressing onward to something that is, uh, man, the news is depressing this week. Still, just de- thinking, <laughs> still depressing, but in an entirely different way. Wait, before you go on, yes, can I say one thing that I thought of during that last story? Yeah, yeah. Uh, attention, listeners, if you are also depressed and perhaps upset by the state of our state, don't forget that there's an election coming up on November six. I know you know that, but tell your friends. Like, make your own sign, put it in your yard that says vote on November 6th and then, you know, hang with us and get ready because come after the election starting in November and continuing, especially into the spring, we need your help in talking to our legislators. So go vote for them, but then follow up and make sure you meet them in person. They know you and that we can have these conversations. As we said at the top of the show, there's going to be a whole bunch of folks who, who are brand new to the Capitol. I almost, so they, they didn't know shit from Shinola. Many of them do. They're very educated people. But this is a brand new world for all of them. And and they are only going to be as good as the information they have. And so we need your help in giving them good information. You know, Andrew, I uh, I could not have asked for a better lead-in to our next article. <laughs> oh, great. Because that's from NPR. On the sidelines of democracy, exploring why so many Americans don't vote Mm. you know um we're we're really just going to mention this briefly um not because it's not worth your time it is but because there's so much there we i mean we could literally spend an entire episode just dissecting this article but um suffice it to say um you can look at voting behavior and see that it 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 kind of cuts across society and there's fairly reproducible lines that predict voting behavior and they have more to do with economic class uh, and education than anything else. So wealthier, more educated people tend to vote more often. Um, and folks who are lower down um, on the economic ladder and who have less education tend to vote less often. And I mean, to me, I feel like I see that reflected in our the policy choices made by our lawmakers. Um, but the end idea is if we want things to change, um, we need lots and lots and lots more people to vote. What do you guys think? I just want to chime in and say, and there's really no reason not to vote. It's so easy. You can sign up for vote by mail online with the Oklahoma Election Board, and they will mail you your ballot straight to your house. Um, If you prefer to vote on Election Day, your employer has to provide you with the time to do that. Polls are open 7 to 7. Take a couple hours. Go vote. Hopefully you don't have to stand in line for a couple hours. Um, But if you did, that would be awesome because it means there's lots of people there voting. Um, it's it's so easy and it's so important, and especially at the local and state level, your vote can have such a huge impact. I think a lot of folks get caught up in the, the national stuff once every four years or once every eight years, and they kind of think, when they think of voting, that's what they think of first. But, man, there's so many elections in between that you can go and really see your impact um, immediately. No, totally. And, and, you know, I'll even throw out there. So there's, um, we have put out like, um, you know, Andy, Andy did a, uh, you know, Andy did a, a, a kind of 
a, a quick cast, um, a short podcast. What do we, a, a quick fix? Quick fix. A quick fix. Uh, several months ago on how to register to vote. Um, I did a quick fix on how to vote. Um, you can go to the Oklahoma County Election Board and check your registration. You can print out their registration form. Um, and if you, dude, if you, we've said this before. If you, uh, if you know me personally, send me a text message. I will pick up your voter registration form and take it. If you don't know me, you can Twitter me, and I will uh, tweet at me. I will meet you somewhere and pick up your voter registration form and drop it off. Mail it yourself. You can also mail it yourself. But if you're unwilling to do that, um, I will I will pick it up and take it from you. Or you can come see me at Open Streets in South Oklahoma City uh, in two weeks from this Sunday, and uh, we'll have some voter registrations forms there. That'll be on. October 7th uh, at Wiley Post Park. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Uh, last up. Hey, can I, I want to say one more thing about voting. You say whatever you want. Which is just, if you think about the flip side of it, you're never going to, you're never going to regret voting. Like you're never going to leave the polling place and be like, man, I wish I hadn't done that. It's never going to make your day worse to go cast your ballot. You know what? I but it might make your day better. You know, well done. That should be our, there it is. That's the cold open right there. All right. Uh, lastly, um, there's an article from Reuters, from Reuters from Reuters this week. Most states lack the reserves to weather the next recession. Uh, it's basically talking about uh, state treasuries and that um, despite the lessons we thought we learned in the Great Recession of 2008, there are a significant number of states across the country, 23 in fact, that are uh, not in a good position um, fiscally to be prepared for a next recession. Um, and uh, I'll just cut to the chase. You guys, any idea where Oklahoma sits on that list? Probably like one or two. Uh, we're not one, but we are number two. Yay. So Louisiana Louisiana's first, followed by uh, Oklahoma. So one thing to be thinking about as you are uh, doing your advocacy leading up to the election is asking the candidates that are running in your district, what do they, what do they think the solution is to prepare Oklahoma for a future national economic downturn. Ask that again. What do what do the candidates running in your district think is the solution to help Oklahoma as a state, the treasury, be better prepared for an economic downturn? That's a good question. Right? Is it like, is it going to be that it hits and we just start slashing spending? Should we raise taxes now while we're in the middle of an economic upswing and store some money away? Should we like what should we what should, what what do you what do they think we should do to be prepared for a fiscal crisis? Well, and and as a reminder, I think Governor Fallon's at one point at least I I believe that she hoped her legacy of her governorship would be that she restored and replenished our rainy day fund. Right? <laughs> oh boy, was so she when she took office, there was like two dollars in there. I mean, like two dollars and forty six cents or something, yeah. and. And she did like it got built up to six hundred million dollars, six hundred fifteen million. But then, in the middle of stuff like things went south with oil and gas, we had cut rates we probably shouldn't have cut, and we had to tap into those funds. We had to use our savings just to get by, and we still had to cut spending as well, right? Like so, we had to cut spending and spend our savings, and it was we used it all. Like, and then we put some more in it, and we used all that. And so now it's we've got it built back up because we got lucky. Mm-hmm. The markets have come back up, right? But everyone knows like the market doesn't ever stay up, yeah. nor does it stay down historically. And so we're right now we're doing okay. 
We've got some money in there. She's going to leave office without it being empty. So that's a good thing. But we we desperately need to, to plan ahead because it, it wasn't enough. It, the rainy day fund wasn't big enough for the rainy days we had. Right. Um, other states did like expand there so they had more money. Like $3 billion. Yeah, because also it costs more to run a state today yeah. than it did 50 years ago, right? So yep. we just need more money. And then... And so we could we could plan ahead, and I think with some much smarter, wiser policies, we could maybe rely on revenue that is not so tumultuous, right? So mm-hmm. like we live by oil and gas, we die by oil and gas. We need things that are broader, more stable, and then we could we could afford to invest in the state. We could pay our teachers an adequate wage. We could fix our roads and bridges. We could perhaps have healthcare and hospitals that don't close, and then when something tragic happens and the economy tanks for an unexpected reason or or something bigger than what Oklahoma has control over, we won't be in a pickle. Are you still a registered independent? I am. Would, I was just wondering when you became a communist. <laughs> Listen, communism as a theory has some real perks. In, in application, it often is left lacking. All I'm right. not saying that your cow is my cow. I'm just saying... That that maybe we could plan a little bit. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that is, and also a hat tip to uh, outgoing state representative John Montgomery. Uh, that's uh, he actually tweeted out that article from Reuters um, and tweeted out a version yeah. of that question. Saying, that's really this great. Is, this is something you should be. This is something you should be talking to uh, candidates in your district about. He's running for Senate, right? I think so. Yeah. I need to look and see how. I haven't looked at the status of his race. So that will do it for our news roundup. So we will take a quick break and be back to talk about some polling. All right, we're back to talk about polling. Polling. Well, not polling, I guess. Mostly a polls. Soon a poll. A sooner poll. One poll. Yeah. So Do you think this poll... are these the polls that keep calling me every two days from Fort Cobb? What? Yeah. Are you getting probably, called? Probably. In DC? I'm getting called constantly, and I thought that it was um I thought it was a scam, and so I've been declining it over and over and over again. And then I called the phone number back, and it said your number was randomly dialed for a public opinion poll, and I was like, oh man, I Dang missed it. it. You got to answer those, Effie. I have not. I know, I've gotten a lot of. I know. I've had a bunch of spam calls from Mustang, Oklahoma, but when I, and I answer them, hoping it's a poll, and it's not. It's like, <laughs> it's like a Google AdWords. I've thought of. I've thought about. It. I've been getting some of those too, and there may be some of them that are polls, but I, I haven't called any of them back. You guys answer your phone calls. Bill Shepard needs your data. You know what? If well, you, the, the very next time one calls, I'm gonna answer it and. You know, give them just all my phone. You know okay. what you should do if you want me to call you back or answer my phone? Leave a message. <laughs> if you call... And not I don't, me. Don't leave me a voicemail. I will you, not listen. If you call and I don't have your number in my phone and there's not a voicemail, block. Really? I get yeah, so many. Which, which, just before we get into the specific poll that was conducted in the results... That makes me wonder a little bit if it's already skewed towards older voters because millennials aren't answering their phones. So uh, that is a great question. 538 Politics addressed this in a recent podcast, and they talked about, well, good. there's good pollsters and there's bad pollsters, and there's some meh posters. Good pollsters 
and 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 honestly probably most pollsters these days do a mix of online landline and cell phone but it also depends on the individual poll because uh, every respondent is is pre-classified as like a likely voter um, an unlikely voter a registered voter whatever and so they have to guess on who's going to show up and so you know shepherd with sooner poll uh caught a lot of flack about his polls shortly before the primary runoff because they skewed towards older more conservative people yeah but that's it's a primary runoff in oklahoma that's who's going to turn out so yeah what you mean is people who are more likely to both answer their phone and listen to a voicemail (laughs) that's true that's possible that's a true story well the poll that we're talking about was conducted by sooner poll um which is run by this is Bill Shepard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the is the pollster, if you will. Um, this came out. Uh, this is a little bit old news. This came out about ten days ago, I think. But we hadn't had a chance to talk about it yet. And you know, we are. You know, if you listen to the show, you know that Andy and I are data nerds and obsessed with five thirty eight. And because we don't, because we don't live in a swing state, and a lot of races here aren't competitive, there's not a lot of polling. So when we have a poll that we can dissect, um, we both get excited about it. Also, for the record, people wonder about why there's not more polling to do a good poll it it takes a lot of planning and so if you hire someone to do a poll like if you hire sooner poll i haven't actually priced them but i've talked to people who do and an average poll is somewhere between fifteen thousand and twenty five thousand dollars in oklahoma so that's for a statewide poll of likely voters right that's a pretty standard poll um of from both parties so parties will poll within their own races and within their own parties, like certain campaigns will pull like congressional campaigns might if they have the money. But again, I mean, 20 grand goes a long way for other efforts. So. Right. And when you have a, like when you have races that are predicted to be decided by 15, 20, 25 points, and there's not a reason to think that they won't be, you're not going to have, you know, the Washington post and ABC aren't going to come in and do a poll of the Oklahoma, like first congressional district, right. Which is going to be, a 30 point margin. Like there's just not going to spend the time and resources there when there's other races that are more competitive all over the country. So that's why you don't see more data, but we have this one, we have this data point. So um, we're going to start first and just talk about the results. So the results of this poll showed um, it was a gubernatorial poll. Uh, So this showed Kevin Stitt over Drew Edmondson by 46.6 to 44.2. So 2.4% with Chris Powell getting 3.2% of the vote. Undecided voters or voters that aren't sure uh, were 6%. So just to jump in, there were more folks undecided than than there were dividing the two main candidates. Which is huge. In fact, almost three times more undecided voters than there are folks that are uh, separating the two gubernatorial candidates. So that's one big takeaway. Uh, self-described moderates, uh, folks who, who would describe themselves to the pollster as a moderate, favor Drew Edmondson. Uh, by a margin of 49.3%, uh, which Andy, you know, you and I were talking about this poll when it came out. Uh, and Effie, I think you were on that text ring too. We both found that pretty striking. Um, among folks who said that Oklahoma is headed in the right direction, Kevin Stitt leads by 18.5%. By folks who said Oklahoma is headed in the wrong direction, Drew Edmondson leads by 8.2%. That's an interesting um, contrast to me and one that I don't think bodes well for Drew Edmondson. Um, I feel like I, I, it surprises me that he does not have a bigger lead among folks who feel like 
the state is headed in the wrong direction. And that tells me that Kevin Stitt is doing a good job as setting up his own brand apart from Mary Fallon specifically and Republican leadership generally. Well, I, no, I think it, it doesn't really, I think it makes sense. So it's just among people who think the state is going in the right direction, Stitt leads. Well, it doesn't say how many people think that. Like, if only six people think we're going in the right direction. No, it does. It's, it's 44.3% of the sample. Okay, so less than half of the people think yeah. we're in the right direction. And and, so, and he's got about a 20-point Right, right. Lead. So great. Like, so he's leading less than half the people. Well, right. That's, I think that's good for Drew, which is the opposite of what you said. Well, so to me, because... The wrong direction, the wrong direction portion is fifty-five point seven percent of the sample, and Edmondson leads by eight point two, which is good that he, for him, that he leads among that group of people. But I would have expected it to be larger. Does that make sense? That's anyway. So, um, among men, uh, the two candidates are at a tie. Among women, Kevin Stitt leads by three point seven percent. So here in a second, we're gonna get into kind of talking about the results and kind of how you interpret polls. But Effie, just right at face value, what are your thoughts about those? What what do you think about those results? Um, Yeah, I don't understand the women thing. Um, I'm also just confused that there's anybody who thinks Oklahoma's going in the right direction as far as the direction it's been going. You know, we just talked about the article about Oklahoma having this high uninsured rate and high poverty level and the lowest, the highest, um, whatever still well is lowest life expectancy in the country. Um, and hospitals closing and schools are sort of in revolt and continuing to be in a funding crisis. And, you know, I think the tide's turning a little bit. People are getting more involved and engaged and interested, but if that's the right direction, I'm just really confused about who those people are and what, they're right. paying attention to. Yeah, that was that was surprising to me too. Um, you know, the the I thought that the wrong direction, like I said, I thought that the wrong direction numbers, I thought there would be a bigger split, right? That there would be more people thinking Oklahoma was in the wrong direction, and I'm surprised that Edmondson's lead is only eight and a half points among those people. But you know, and then the women thing, I'm not even going to try to explain why Kevin Stitt leads among women, being that I'm not a woman, so I don't know that i can contribute anything to that discussion hi juno juno is if you hear her in the background she is uh making her customary appearance on the pod um so yeah i don't have an explanation that's, an, for that. that's you, another core group here that's missing is like what do dogs think <laughs> what do dogs think uh i can tell yeah. <laughs> you that uh juno's candidate her preferred candidate for governor will be the one who gives her the biggest bone that is um yeah, that's 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 who she's gonna want for sure. Is that uh, like the the is that like the dog version of like a tax break? Yeah, uh, you know, that pro- uh, maybe a refund, maybe a tax refund. That's what she. Okay. <laughs> so. See, additional polling needs to be conducted to yeah. really find out where Oklahoma's dogs are at on this. I uh, I would support that. I I'll donate to the pollster that does that. So uh, next up, I think we've got an interview with Mr. Daniel Che, who's mm-hmm. running for Oklahoma County Treasurer. Yeah, Effie, are you? Do you want to stick around, or do you need to go? Um, whatever you guys prefer, I can just listen in. Well, either no, way, I mean, if you it's like a it's like a preview of the. If product. you want to participate, we can keep you on. If you don't want to participate, I will hang up and record it in a different system. 
Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I think I've participated enough, yeah. don't you? Uh, I mean, I, we we love your participation, but if you don't want to, that's also fine. I'm fine either way. I'll let, I'll let y'all interview Daniel. You you take the race here, and I'll, I'll listen to it when it's in its final form. Okay. Okay. I was going to say you could. How about you stick around because you have good insight? <laughs> that was my thought too. I want you to stay, but you do oh, you. Oh, well, no, no, I just didn't want to invite myself. No, no. I can hear it in your voice. And <laughs> yeah. You're like, I mean, you want to, but. <laughs> yeah, no. Like, All right, so, well, we'll um, take a quick break. Our next segment is sponsored by the Brewers Union. Now, if you're a regular listener to Let's Pod This, you probably know that Scott and I enjoy a craft beer on occasion. But what you might not know is that Oklahoma is in the midst of a craft beer revolution. And there's a great spot right here in Oklahoma City where you can find some of the best beer around. The Brewers Union provides a workspace for aspiring commercial brewers, fostering their talent by offering a collaborative learning environment to grow brewing expertise, taproom sales, and distribution sales. It's kind of like an incubator for upstart breweries. Now, I've been there to the Brewers Union, and I can tell you it's a really great space. And yes, they do have a fantastic selection of local craft beer that you can't find anywhere else. But it's also an event venue that you could rent. It's the perfect setup, really. Receptions, fundraisers, or just a really awesome party. Be sure to follow them on Facebook and check out their website, buok.beer, for a list of events, booking details, and details about membership if you're a local brewer and want to join the union. Brewers Union, they're here for beer. Okay, well, we're back. And uh, on the latter half of this episode, we're going to interview Daniel Che. Who Sir you, Daniel Che. Is, has he been knighted? <laughs> if not, he should be. He should Someday, be. I hope. But thank he, you. Thank you for having me. So, Daniel, uh, many folks may know you from uh, your restaurant, which recently closed, that bared your name. Yes. Che Modern Korean was sold. We sold the building to That's some right. good operators. Yeah. Uh, but you still own Urban. We still have Urban. And, uh, you know, just to just to up the ante, we're going to be announcing here on Let's Fix This that uh, we're bringing back the Che restaurant name. Really? Under Che Cafe and Eatery going on over where um, my, my other cafe was, All uh-huh. About Chow and Western. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're uh, rebranding. We're going independent. Hot diggity oh. dog. So it's exciting. Yeah. Well, exciting times. exciting. Yeah. Can, you, I, can, I, can I ask, a, this may be classified. This no. Maybe. What? Will the oxtail consomme? Ooh. So yeah. that's going to be happening at Urban. It's in literally in the works. This rainy season has a... Uh, <laughs> Today's a good day for it. The ox, so Steve uh, Lackmeyer from uh, uh, Oklahoma, yeah, yeah. Oklahoma, he had a tweet out today. He was like, uh, rainy day, soup, where should I go? Uh, P.S. Not pho. And, like, and I was like, oh, where is the oxtail consomme? Oh, it's, it's, it's coming back. It's coming back. Oh, that's oh, super that's exciting. exciting. Yeah, yeah. So... So another another good reason to subscribe to Let's Fix This. So. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's right. right. That's breaking news. This may be our first our first commercial and our first breaking news segment. Breaking news. Well, Daniel, uh, the reason you're joining us today is that you are actually uh, running for Oklahoma County Treasurer. I am. This is kind of a return to your roots. Right? It is. It is. You know, um, it's funny. You, 
like my conversations happen just like the way we just did here. You know, we're talking about restaurants, we're talking about our favorite dishes, and then we talk about eventually uh, things that also matter to us as far as our intellect and um, feeding our soul. And Andy, you know, we've known each other for a while that um, I used to work at for, for county government before I did this. And so in lots of ways, it's a return to um, my my profession, my skill sets. And so I'm really excited to be able to uh, contribute to hopefully um, uh, our community in this way as well. Yeah. What made you decide to run for office? You know, for the longest time, when you're working as a public servant, really, um, you, you just do the work. You know, it's you, you while you do follow the, pol- uh, the the politics, the elections. You know, you still have the work at hand. You have the regulations that you follow. And so, when I was doing the work for housing and homelessness, that's that was our biggest drive to make change, to help nonprofits, to um, really be able to help those who are suffering the most. And so, that's. That's what that, that that just did it for me. I didn't need to do anything else. There was no higher calling. It was like let's get the work done, um, you know. And and I think at some point while I was here in Oklahoma and trying to build um, the community around me and the ecosystem around me, um, you know, so many people were, I guess, talking about politics and you know, and I realized how far off removed that was from the work of government. And lots of times, and and often oftentimes, um, you know, I think people get the two mixed up and I guess I just learned that um, in lots of ways sometimes to make actual change and in lots of ways here in Oklahoma you have to kind of step up you know you have to go into this leadership role to affect the culture and when I was looking around um, and particularly on the county government level um, the culture of the county government was just not where I felt like it should be Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's very generous. Yeah, no, I, you know, I think the work is hard for sure. But, you know, when you have um, folks who have been in it for a long, long time, you I, mean, I, I would say that you're not as aggressive and you're not looking at more progressive approaches to it. And so, um, yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why I decided to run after. Uh, and, and a part of it, too, is I also wanted to show my also my my fellow colleagues, my fellow peers, you know, we can talk about this all all the time we can talk about this but it, you know it's it's guys like you you know andy i told you like you know it was thanks to lex fixes that just got me to motivated to act upon hmm. and move from having simple discussions to what can i do what can i personally do and uh, what can i do for my friends who who are also equally invested in community discussions but and i'm now i'm trying to like motivate them like listen if i can do this you can definitely do this mm-hmm. and so um yeah is is there any particular you know issue, any particular problem? Is there is there something that you see happening in Oklahoma County that you feel like, man, this this is what this is what I need to this is what I need to be tackling on the first day? Like this is the most pressing thing that we need to address. Yeah, there are actually a couple, and and you know, I, I wish there was just one thing. And <laughs> but I was I was just as I reflect on the role, there's so much to do. You know, mm-hmm. um, on the on the county treasurer role, the specific role, the day to day is obviously to collect taxes, the ad valorem taxes and sending out um, those invoices that every property owner gets. Um, but I want that even in that day to day role, we can be doing so much better to help fo- folks stay out of foreclosure, tax foreclosure. It's it. We all face it. I'm sorry. Is that my phone? <laughs> uh, we all face um, any property owner faces that any any business owner faces that. And so. When we talk about um, just that specific role of the county treasurer, uh, I'd love to get more transparency at the in the office. The county's finances, the county's role on a, on a larger scale, 
lot of folks I'm surprised. Um, and well, I take that back. I'm not that surprised that <laughs> many folks don't know what the county treasurer does. Many folks don't know even what the county commissioner does, you know? Mm-hmm. So I believe last time we talked, you know, we were sitting in the primaries and looking at, as the results came in, um, so much of it is just education. You know, what, what do people, what do people at the county level do? And, you know, a big part of it is that on the county side, across the board, almost all of the eight elected officials, almost, um, have been there for over a decade, you know? Mm-hmm. And so during this time of politics and you just have incumbents filling in these roles, um, you, you just sort of lose that education piece. Um, yeah. So you're running against, uh, Butch Freeman, who's the incumbent and he's been in office for, yeah, for 25 years and there's a considerable it, amount of time that, and that is, and <laughs> You know, I had this conversation today with um, with uh, a community member. You know, it's not change for change sake. Change sake. Um, you know, I don't know Butch Freeman personally, but from what I've heard of him, what I know of him, he's a fine gentleman. You know, there's, there's um, I don't have anything personally against him. Um, yeah, you're not like running to say like, dude, gotta get that guy out of there. No, he's no, he's Che for change. Yeah, with, <laughs> the, with, the, with the extra consonant. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I think. One thing I excelled at when I was working for the county and on the state level is pushing for new ideas, um, looking at, you know, they'll say like, well, these, the regulations are the regulations. And I happen to know, having worked on these for, you know, federal, state and local um, levels of regulations, it's just, there's a lot of um, room to work with it. You know, like when people put together a grant, there's a specific task, but there's multiple ways to get to that task. Ending homelessness is for is a great example of, there's so many different tactics to go about. There are be- national best practices, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think on the county level, we've kind of taken a backseat on that. We can be talking about it more. We can be pushing out the information, you know? There's there's so many different ways, even on our webpage, where we can provide information to people. I think there's ways to avoid tax foreclosure on your properties. And yes, the county does have opportunities for senior citizens and um, folks that are disabled to be get, to get some tax relief. Um, but that information is hard to find online. and and it's just getting, we just need to be doing a better job getting information out there so that we can prevent foreclosure. Right. So because if we if if someone's foreclosed upon, not only are they then homeless, but the county also loses that ad valorem taxes. Right. Right. Like right. If no one owns it, then it. Yeah. And 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 it's just it's a hard at you know thing to wrap around if you've just been kind of doing it like well you know we sent them to notice and mm-hmm. you know I think. I think just this past week, if you get one of the newspapers like OKC Friday or um, the Black Chronicle, you get this really long, like four booklet, not even the four Mm -hmm. sheet, but like, you know, like the whole division. It's it's a really long. It's basically like bigger than the newspaper itself of just a list and list of people that are facing foreclosure, tax foreclosure. Oh, man, I had no idea. Yeah. And it's exactly right. That's that's by regulation. They're required to go through the newsprint, you know, but. I think we're all so they put around. it out in whatever has like the lowest circulation just right. to, yeah. wow. you know, but here we are, we're on, I mean, we're, it's, we're in a sort of a new era, right? We're doing right. podcasts, we're around mm-hmm. a table and people just get information much differently than old school newspapers and, you know, and so there's a lot of room for improvement just on that end. Sure. Um, on the larger scale, you know, I think the, 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 the aspect that everybody immediately goes to on the county side is the county jail and right. people. Sure automatically ask well just yesterday i was talking to someone's like well what's your experience in law enforcement to be able to talk about this and for a second i was like well i'm not a police officer but you know actually my first job out of college was um a a job developer for parolees 
So mm. I would get patted down um, once a week just to go in, do interviews with parolees. Um, you know, it's it's I've been in prisons um, for a good chunk of that time, just getting to know people and getting them ready. And I was able to get in the front row seats of seeing people um, rehabilitated, you know, working with the program when nonprofits are able to engage the jail more. Um, I know our county jail faces a lot of issues. Um, one, you know, when you, it's a simple answer, right? Like, oh, just get some nonprofits in there, do some programming, and they'll be rehabbed on the way out. But, you know, the county jail doesn't even have the enough people, um, to, enough guards to be able to do that. Right. You know? And so there are obviously issues all the way around. Um, but I think we need to keep keep that on the forefront. Let's keep talking about Let's get less engaged nonprofits um, so that people, when they're coming out, they're getting the services so that both on the foreclosure end, both on the um, folks who are getting paroled, that there are options for them there that we can help um, close this revolving door for, uh, for the jail too. Yeah. Did this, this person ask you that question, did they think that you're running for sheriff? No, you know, (laughs) like I'm just, I'm just confused why having law enforcement experience is a prerequisite for being the County treasurer. I don't, that's, Sure. I mean, like, I mean, our president hasn't served in the military and neither the president before then. Right. And yet they're the commander in chief. And, and I think that's what our democracy is all about. Right. A citizen yeah. board that yeah. keeps folks accountable. Yeah. Right. And um, yeah. And I think on as the treasurer, you're one of eight elected um, officials on the county board of county commissioners. So along with the three, the other five elected officials are all uh, all together considered the board of county commissioners. So, so who all is it's the three county commissioners, three county commissioners. You got uh, the clerk, the treasurer, the assessor, the sheriff and think it's a court clerk there's one more mm-hmm. there's one more person in there that um yeah oh yeah because there's now, a, now i'm just gonna get thinking about it that's <laughs> <laughs> gonna come to me um but. well that's fascinating and so i know for the last few years um you have also served on like the continuum of care yeah for oklahoma city right so you know, while we were doing the restaurants, while we were um, building about um, our, our group of three different restaurants, um, I could never get away from wanting to continue on with, you know, community investment mm-hmm. at, on, on that on the other end. Right. Um, so I served on the Western Avenue board and then also served on the um, city of Oklahoma City social services board. Mm-hmm. Um, I always told myself that I wasn't ever going to say city of Oklahoma City because it just sounded <laughs> it sounds. Yeah, but it does sound funny. Here I am saying it. Oh, man. <laughs> hey, man. <I'm> deep. <laughs> but, it's getting yeah. real. So uh, the the supportive services board um, oversees a few different fun, uh, funding streams. Um, a couple from the federal government, from HUD, and um, one of the uh, uh, discretionary funds for the city. And so what we do is we gather together um, with the help of city staff, and we literally go through so many pages. I'd say like hundreds of pages of applications of um, from different nonprofits um, requesting funds for all kinds of work related to housing and homelessness. And um, it's a good group to be be with. I'm actually pretty fortunate to be part of it. Made up of um, DHS, um, uh, the Veterans Veterans Affairs, um, people in the city. It's it's a great group, and um, it's 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 kept me linked. It's keep it kept me linked with the pulse of our human services community here in in Oklahoma City for sure. Yeah. You guys may have forgotten that Effie Craven is still with us on the phone. Effie, do you have any questions for Daniel? No, I think this is super interesting, and I think it just it loops back to to a comment earlier about you know how easy it is to get to know your local and state elected officials personally and get to talk with them personally and find out what it is they care about and where they come from. Um, 
So I think this is um, super interesting, and it's it's always exciting to hear um, people wanting to get engaged in the process. Yeah, you know, I I I will consider myself fortunate, and but not unique or special um, that that I this go round like this election cycle I know a number of candidates just because I know them not because I've done let's fix this necessarily like Daniel I met, I met you right um you know a, a couple of years ago just through community and, and honestly through some housing programs and stuff and and delicious food um I you know Julia Kurt is running for the Senate District 30 which is in which is where I live and she happens to live down the street from me, and I know her through Oklahoma's for the Arts, so not through politics at all. Um, Jason Dunnington, who is my house rep, I knew him from college. Like his dad was the dean, and he was a pastor at a church that I attended, you know, twenty years ago. And so it's it's in Oklahoma, as as Effie said, like it's still a it's not a big place, right? Like you can still know people, um, and and it's it is people who like just regular Joes and who are like, you know what? I want to make a difference. I want to run for office. And, and then they do. And, and so now it's weird, you know, to like be like, Oh, I've got friends that are in the legislature. That's still an odd or the mayor, you know, like, yeah, it's a weird thing to me. No, yeah, no, it is. It's, it's like, you know, I had a meeting with a legislator earlier this week and it's just somebody who is is a legislator but also is a friend and it's you know what i mean like it's like also friends that i had they were friends and i didn't yeah. know they worked in politics and then later they're like oh yeah well i do consulting on the side it's like i didn't yeah that's happening yeah. a lot we yeah, used to yeah. talk about soccer and and now we're talking about politics and it's just a funny shift yeah i mean it's it's there's it we are all so much closer to this process than I think we we think we are. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like people say all the time, like, "Oh, I don't I don't care about politics," or "I'm I'm into politics." Like it doesn't you know it doesn't affect me. Well, yes, it does. And whether you like wh- whether you want to admit that you're in politics or not, you are right. Like politics, I think is, is Greek, right? The polity, like mm-hmm. it's the politics that comes from the the like the, the affair the the affairs of the citizens. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. what it means. Mm-hmm. So you live here. So yes, in fact, you are involved in politics now. You can choose to leverage that involvement or you can choose not to, but mm-hmm. you're involved whether you want to be or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's well, and to, to chime in from Washington, D.C., you know, people, I think, think that politics is, is just what's happening in the White House or just what's happening in Congress. And that stuff's important and it impacts the whole country, but you're a lot, they are a lot further away from, from being sort of the boots on the ground. And the citizens are a lot further away from them as far as being able to actually sit down with your U.S. senator or your congressman um, and get to know them and where they came from and have access to them. So getting involved in, in the state and local level is, I think, a really encouraging way to see that politics doesn't always have to be super nasty and it doesn't um, it doesn't have to be what we see on the news all the time. Right. And. And the thing that we hear often, and maybe it doesn't always connect the way that I wish it does, is that that the the more local the politics are, right? The more local the office, the greater the impact yep. on your life. And so oh, I, something I like county too. treasurer, yeah, everyone's like, oh, I kind of know the counties around, but to say like, uh, hey, I collect the taxes on your house, right? It's like, oh, okay, well, and I, that, and help decide what they're spent on, right? And I, yeah, and I help decide what happens to the jail, and I help decide on this and that, and it's like, oh, well, 
I understand. I see that stuff in my day-to-day life. Like I may not see immigration policy for the United States and how that impact because yeah, you know, like right. those kind of things may not connect quite the same way. And so, you know, I, um, Carrie Bloomert, who is running for County commissioner for Oklahoma County, um, had, has made a, a big point of saying like all politics is local for this very reason yeah. that if you can articulate how it connects, it's, I think it, it resonates on a deeper level with people. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's, especially here in the city, I mean, everybody drives around, drives past the jail. It's right there in the middle of our city, mm-hmm. right? People talk about homelessness and it was really big. Um, you know, the, 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 the city and the ACLU got in on it because they were trying to criminalize homelessness and panhandling. And, you know, th- these are the things like that we see every single day, multiple times throughout the day. And, you know, even taking a step back, there's zoning, right? Like mm-hmm. this shopping mall i mean like you saw it most recently when i think the 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 high low club was about to be like torn down and everybody you know like it was all based on zoning yeah people people picketed because a bar was gonna get torn down if that's not local (laughs) politics i don't know what it is we're also gonna drink right well to quote to quote quote one of our greatest presidents bartlett dr jeb bartlett Uh, 90% of the governing that really matters happens a mile from your house. That's exactly right. Oh, I believe it. Well, and to talk about the, the county jail, I mean, as one of the taller businesses downtown or taller buildings downtown, also it's so close to like the Jones assembly and all of that West village area that's, that's booming right now. And like 21 C. And so everyone who's gone to like stone cloud brewery or the Jones assembly or whatever, you can't help but drive past it. And I wonder if that puts it more into the, the, the forefront for people's minds of like oh yeah this is still a thing like we do have a jail right here in downtown i wonder what's going on in there are people dying this week well that, and that's another thing i was going to mention it's like you know it's easy i think people you know we talk about you know there's this, there's stories in the news all the time about overcrowding and you know that there's not enough guards and you know i many if not most of us don't have friends or relatives that are incarcerated but it's it's really easy to forget like the, these problems have literal life and death consequences. Like uh, the underfunding of our correction systems. Well, <laughs> the underfunding of our correction system and the fact that we incarcerate more people than anywhere else in the world, in the entire world, those two things are combining. People are literally dying because of those kinds of like the, because of the policies that we have. Um, and those are policies that aren't going to be changed by how you vote in your congressional election or who you vote for for president, they're going to be changed by who you vote for, for county commissioner and county treasurer and mayor and like these kind of hyper, you know, sheriff, these hyper local offices um, that, that can save people's lives. Right. And that's why I'm running, right? Like we're, what, what kind of leadership do you want on, on the county level and on the state level for, you know, who are, who's around the table and what, what, what's their value system? What's their culture system, right? Are they fine with how things are? And are they going to say things like, you know, people are soft on crime or, you know, things like, you know, like these yeah. like old school cliche things, or are they going to come out of that and say, Hey, we've got issues that are much more complex than a simple three, four letter word, you know, yeah. or, you know, or four worded sentence. Like, are we going to think outside the box? Are we going to try to help people? I mean, we've tried this whole let's lock them up thing. Like, okay, that that was a nice little tagline. What are we going to do as a community now uh, for our own neighbors, right? If our own neighbors get locked up, like, are we just going to say, hey, you know, let's lock them up, you know, right. throw away the key? No, I mean, we're not going to do that. It's we've, we've already seen that. It's not economical. It's not sustainable. We need people at the table who are wanting fresh ideas, who want to push, you know, and, and help and understand, like, 
to have a thriving community, we need to be taking care of all of our neighbors, not just the rich guys, not just the great like people who are doing amazing things, but the people, the poorest of the poor, the people who can't help themselves. So one question, just kind of curious, uh, your opponent, when is the last time he had, like when's the last time he had an opponent? Has anybody well, run against him in, in a while? You know, I don't. It's a very great question. The His last po- primary opponent was uh, uh, Darren Ward. He's the chair of the county GOP. And so just to give you, Another reason why local politics politics is important. The 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 county Republican Party chair ran against Butch Freeman in the primary. Um, this so, year, this year, okay. like a couple months ago, right? Um, we have very you know it's it's an necessary strategy. The Republican Party did a great job um, from from going after the down ballot races, right? Uh, when 2010 hit, almost every single local position yeah. turned Republican, and mm-hmm. that's not. That, that wasn't a fluke. It's by yeah. design, right? Mm-hmm. And again, this isn't, while I am running as the Democrat, this isn't a Republican-Democrat argument. It's all politics. Going back to the all politics is local. These local races, people usually go from there um, onto other races. The people who are, you know, that name recognition in politics and campaigning is yeah. so important. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I think people, I was having a d- difficult time trying to engage people in conversation just because they didn't know what the county treasurer was and they would rather talk about the governor and right. all that stuff Right. until I told them, well, you know, the last person that ran against Butch Freeman was the chair of the Republican Party. Um, and it's important that people, people yeah. are paying attention to this. People on the political, mm-hmm. um, people who are sure. hyper-partisan are very much focused on what goes on um, on these uh, um positions and so I feel like at the point that you say you take my money for my house I would pay attention yeah no joke (laughs) well so well and you've touched you've touched on one of my favorite soapboxes which is unopposed races because you know the the sort of bedrock of of democracy is voting right but voting only matters if there's two names on the ballot you can't vote if there's only one person running for these seats so I think that's so important too not only for people to turn out and vote but you know, every single candidate that's running from from any party, thank you for for just you know sticking your neck out there and putting your name on the line. Because um, if there's if there's only one person, then what happens on election day is irrelevant. Yeah, no true story. Well, Daniel, so if uh, folks want to, I mean, do you need volunteers? Do you need donations? Do you oh, need what? Yeah. Do you need phone? Yeah, how, do, how do they get a hold of you? So this is my second brand like breaking news announcement right here on let's fix this two oh, yeah, my second on. one i don't think that's ever happened before <laughs> this is a, gotta buckle up so the second one is that our campaign yard signs are now available so yeah. people can sign up for a yard sign by going to danielyche.com it's a d-a-n-i-e-l-y-c-h-a-e.com so you can go there um and 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 ask for a yard sign so all right excellent daniel thanks so much for being here oh guys thanks so much this is great effie thanks for joining us from Washington. Thanks for having me. This was excellent, and I'm excited to keep being a loyal listener of the pod. She's like our Washington correspondent. Ooh, <laughs> I like that. Washington correspondent, Effie Craven. Okay, that brings us to the end. But first, one quick announcement that I give every week. As a reminder, on November 6th, we are hosting a big election watch party at the Tower Theater. Uh, Mayor David Holt's going to be there, Representative Jason Dunnington. Um, uh, former state senator A.J. Griffin, going to have local musicians like Casey Clifford, J.B., Joel Mossman, Jose Hernandez. It's going to have free food, drink specials. It's going to be great. Scott and I are going to host. It's going to be like The Tonight Show, but with election coverage. We had an outstanding meeting today with the staff at Tower and Nathan from True Facade. It's gonna, we're going to blow your minds with stage design. 
Colbert ain't got nothing on us. Oh, that's that's all right. And I'll tell you this, sir. I might wear my tuxedo. Really? No obligation on your end. But I well, might just I'm do not going to roll out there in like slacks and a polo. I might also wear my plaid suit. We'll see how it goes. Oh, this is this. Okay. When I say plaid, I mean like red and black and orange and yellow. I'll have to feel like Ron Burgundy. That's right. I'm very important. I have many leather bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. That's right. All right, folks. That officially brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks again to Daniel and Effie. Uh, Daniel, are you on Twitter? I, I'm not. Okay, that's, that's <laughs> fine. Effie, you can follow at Effie Craven. Scott is at SC Melson. I am at Andy OKC. But most importantly, follow us at, at Let's Fix This OK. Uh, you can also follow us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, all those things at Let's Fix This OK. And our website is at Let's Fix This OK.org. Sign up for our newsletter. Read our blog. We'll have one about this episode as we do every week with all those links that we always talk about. Uh, find resources, details about upcoming events such as the election night watch party. Uh, you can also make a donation, um, which would be really awesome. That helps us keep doing this. You can sponsor an episode of the podcast. It's only $50. That would be tremendous. Let's pod this as a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. Our theme music is graciously provided by the Sugar Free All Stars. Let's fix this as a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with their government. Remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>